Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Chad Randall at Life Story Church. We are a grassroots church located in the heart of the Bellevue community in Nashville, Tennessee. Our services are streamed live on Facebook and YouTube every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central Time. We would love for you to join us. Now here's Pastor Chad Randall. All right, let's do this. If I keep yakking like this, I'm going to be late anyway. So, oh, church, these are times that try men's souls. I don't know if you saw the online graphic, but this is what it looks like. I'm assuming it's up there right now. We're going to study the book of Jude in light of that. And we're going to do so over a few weeks. Believe it or not, it's, it's a one-chapter book. It's a short, short book, but it's, uh, there's a lot in there. There's a lot of gold in this book. So uh, if you want to open your uh, Bibles to the book of Jude, it's, the, it's basically the front door to Revelation. It's right before Revelation in the end of the book. We're going to be in Jude today. We're also going to be in Luke chapter 18. So if you're taking notes, just write these down and you can, while I'm talking and teaching, you can be finding them and whatnot. That'll help us move along quicker as well. Luke chapter 18, we're going to be in 2 Peter chapter 3 briefly. So we're going to kind of go here and here. We're going to be in Jude, but you can't study Jude without going here and there as well, okay? So we're going to bounce around a little bit because I also have to set up this entire sermon series today with just the first few verses of Jude. We'll also look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. And I'm going to throw a proverb at you later, but I'm going to leave that as a surprise for you guys. See how quickly you can find proverbs in your Bible, right? That's why I love, I love telling people, bring your Bibles to church. I know Bible apps are huge, and, and uh, I mean, I, I use them predominantly all the time as well, especially if I'm on my uh, home computer at my desk. But I love for us to bring Bibles if we can during, while we're uh, studying because we le- it helps us learn how to find things when you have to find them fast, right? It helps. So uh, with that, I'm going to start with this uh, famous quote, times that try men's souls. It's a famous phrase. We've heard it throughout history, haven't we, in this country? Famously penned by Sir Thomas Paine, one of our founding fathers, he wrote something called The Crisis. It was a a pamphlet that he wrote to inspire the American people at the time of the first revolution. He wrote it and published it December 19th, 1776. And it reads as such, These are times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will in this crisis shrink from the service of their country. But he that stands it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. Tyranny like hell is not easily conquered yet. Yet we have this consolation with us that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. Can you say that with me, guys? Let's read that one line again, okay? We have this consolation with us that, you know what? The harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. I don't know who needed to hear that this morning, but it is the truth. What we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. If it was easy, everybody would do it, right? It is dearness only that gives everything its value. Heaven knows how to put a proper price upon its goods, and it would be strange indeed if so celestial an article as freedom 
should not be highly rated. Amen? Amen. Amen. Indeed, indeed, these are the times that try men's souls, the times that we are living in right now in this nation, church. Would you agree? I want to study Jude today because you might not know this, but Jude is written to us. It is written to the end-time believer, and I've said it many times, I believe we're rapidly approaching that hour of history. It's written to us, the church today, so I think it's timely. Anytime uh, somebody in the Bible writes something specifically to you, I think it's timely, all right? And I think why that will be obvious as we move along, okay, church? The book of Acts, when we think of the book of Acts, what do we typically think of? We typically think of it being the beginning of the church age, don't we? Acts is all about the beginning of the church age, the Acts of the Apostles. But Jude has a little bit different theme. Can I see this? It's not the Acts of the Apostles, is it? It's all about the Acts of the Apostates. This is a study that will take us into some territory that is truly untraveled for many Christians. You may be hearing some things for the first time, as a matter of fact. This is a very much neglected text among churches today because it takes you into those places. It just does. It'll it'll even take us potentially into apocryphal texts to understand context. This is the only book in the Bible that is 100% devoted to apostasy. This is a book, as I said, that has a message for you personally and a message to the body as a whole living in the era, era that we live in now. So to begin studying Jude, uh, I'm going to begin not in Jude. I'm going to begin in Luke chapter 18, and you'll see why. So find Luke chapter 18. Let me hear those Bible pages flip. And we're just going to read verse 1 through 8, all right? Verse 1, now he told them a parable, the need for them to pray always and not give up. This is Jesus. Jesus' words to the disciples, the teaching to the people here is, guys, you've got to pray. You've got to pray always. And when you pray and pray and pray, don't give up. I don't know who needed to hear that, right? Don't give up. Verse 2. He goes into a, a parable then. There was a judge in a certain town who didn't fear God or respect people. A corrupt judge. Hmm. <laughs> Sounds familiar. <laughs> Interesting. Amen. Verse 3. And a widow in that town kept coming to him saying, Give me justice against my adversary. Verse 4. For a while he was unwilling. But later he said to himself, you know, even though I don't fear God or respect people, how's that for a judge, huh? Golly. Even though I don't fear God or respect people, verse 5, yet this widow keeps pestering me, I will give her justice so that she doesn't wear me out. (laughs) Amen. Amen. How important is it to pray, church, and not give up? Verse 6, then, then the Lord said, due to her persistence in coming, the Lord said, listen to what the unjust 
judge says, verse 7, Will not God grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? I know, church, it feels like justice is never going to come. It just feels like that sometimes. But I promise you, justice is coming. The word of God has promised us that much. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And this is an interesting line, and part of the reason I wanted to include this today, because this is telling. This is telling, church, of what we should expect the world to be like when Jesus returns. Jesus' own words, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will there even be faith left on the earth? Second Peter also prophesies of the, this end time prophecy that Jesus is referencing here. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 3 through 4. I'm reading the Christian Standard Bible. It reads, above all, be aware of this. And this is Second Peter's, you gotta, we got to do a study of Second Peter line by line to you. This is incredible. But for our purposes this morning, it, play, they just, it plays together. Jesus tells us what to expect. Then Peter tells us what to expect in the end times. Above all, beware of this. That's like one of those things like when, uh, when Paul says, I implore you, right? If the apostle Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, is literally saying to you, I beg of you to listen to me, we better pay attention, Right? Here's Peter, the rock that the church is built on, saying, above all, be aware of this, okay? Scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing and following their own evil desires, saying, where is his coming? Verse 4, where is his coming that he promised? Can you just hear their tone of voice? Ever since our ancestors fell asleep, all things continue as they have been since the beginning of creation. It's under, important to understand here, church, that these scoffers question not only whether he will return, it's important for you to see this here, not only whether he will return, but whether he even exists. They scoff at you in their unbelief. So Jude had a couple brothers, setting the, setting the tone here, setting the stage. Jude had a couple brothers. One of them was James. Yes, that James, the James who wrote the book of James, okay? James and Jude, they had contrasting themes in their letters. James wrote about good works as evidence of faith. Now, that gets taken out of context a lot and gets twisted around, all right? And a lot of bad teachers, whether intentionally or ignorantly, will teach James and say uh, that if you don't have certain works that they deem qualifying works, then you're not saved. So that gets, it becomes this doctrine all about works being what leads you to salvation, right? But James, make no mistake, what James is talking about in his letter is that good works are simply evidence of the faith. And I say this all the time. When you believe, when you have faith... Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 that your heart is sealed then and there by the promise of the Holy Spirit guaranteeing your inheritance. You understand? When the Holy Spirit is in here and has sealed your heart, he gives you new desires. He gives you spirit eyes. What you wanted to do before you were saved and sealed, now you don't want to do, right? 
And you do want to do things that the old you would have never wanted to do. Like get up a little bit earlier to come to church when you're already <laughs> wish you could sleep in, right? I'm telling you guys. So James talks about works of, as evidence of salvation, and Jude talks about the same thing, just flip it around. He talks about evil works being the evidence of an apostate. Now, the second brother of, of note of Jude's is a guy you're probably familiar with. He's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Pretty cool family, if you ask me. So Jude should be fun. This is the brother of Jesus Christ. This is his brother. And he's writing to you, the end time church, and he's giving you a warning. So it should be fun because Jude makes many offhand remarks or allusions to the Old Testament. In other words, references that he assumes the end time believing reader will be familiar with. He, he makes allusions and references and then doesn't explain them because he assumes that the end-time reader is going to be familiar with his sword. Hmm. So this letter brings a challenge to us. Every single one of us, it'll bring a challenge to many of us. How well do you know the full counsel of God, church? Not just the Gospels, not just the Epistles, all right? It's more than just reading your Bible, as we talked about last week, right? Do you study it? Do you study it? Well, you're about to. Jude chapter 1, verse 1. Oh, there's only one chapter. Jude 1. Jude. This is the greeting. It starts right out of the gate with his name. Jude, which in Greek means traitor. Did you know that? Jude was a common name back there then. And actually, Jude, Judas, same thing in the Greek, traitor. Interesting, but it's very common. So it's interesting that that's his name in a letter about apostasy, huh? He says, Jude, a servant. In other words, a bond servant. I am a bond servant. Bond servants were purchased back then. He refers to himself as a bond servant, purchased servant of Jesus Christ. So that's how he introduces himself to you. He does not use his kinship to Jesus as an identifier. That's interesting, isn't it? He doesn't say, Jude, the brother of Jesus. You know me, right? No, he doesn't use that. He humbles himself. He doesn't introduce himself as Jesus' brother so as not to bring himself up or to bring the Lord's stature down. He recognizes the Lord as much more than simply his earthly brother. But then he reads, continues as we read, I'm a servant of Jesus and a brother of James. And James was the head of the church in Jerusalem at the time. James and Judas were listed among, the, they were not listed among the 12. This is important for us to understand as we study as well. 12 disciples. Jesus, I'm going out. I'm going to find 12 guys to, to carry this gospel forward. Wouldn't it make sense that you'd bring your brothers with you? No, he didn't bring his brothers with him. Why? Because they didn't believe. His brothers didn't believe until after he had been resurrected from the dead. Hmm. So, and we find that in John chapter 7. Uh, but their names are listed in Mark chapter 6. They are his brothers. Okay? To those who are called, and he's addressing you, this I write to you, to those who are called, loved 
by God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. If you don't get anything out of this sermon today, and there's a lot left, I want you to get this, okay? So write this down. (laughs) That's you. Did you know that you are called, loved by God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ? Let me ask you this. How many of you here are watching online feel, feel called? Do you feel called? Or is that for other people who are higher up in the church? Do you feel called? Do you feel loved? How about that one? Do you feel loved? Do you feel kept? If you don't, we should ask, why? Because you are. You are called. You are called to a higher uncommon use. You are loved by God the Father. And you are kept by Jesus Christ. Did you know that you are? Can I take a look at this graphic? Let's go into a little bit more detail. Can we see this? You are. Do we have that? Is that coming up? Well, that's not fun. Well, I'll just read it to you. Called. Who are the called? The called are those who respond in faith. John chapter 15 and John chapter 6 say, I have chosen you. God hath from the beginning chosen you, says 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. You were foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified, Romans chapter 8. You are beloved, specifically referenced as beloved by John chapter 14, John chapter 16, and John chapter 17. John chapter 14, verse 23 reads, Jesus answered, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him. And get this, listen here. (laughs) We will come to him and make our home with him. That's a pretty cool thought, isn't it? You are so beloved by God mm, that if anybody loves me, keeps my word, my Father will love him and will come to him and make our home with him. You are kept. This is interesting because this is the only time in the word of God, the only time that the word kept is used as a salutation in the entire New Testament. Kept, it means watchful care. Do you know that the Lord looks after you like that? Watchful care, continually kept, close attention, present Possession. You are his present possession. He watches you closely. That should make you feel comforted, church. He will keep us from the hour of trial as he has kept the fallen angels, in verse 6, as we'll talk about, because they've kept not their first estate. This is all the phrasing of the same word, kept. We are to be kept blameless by Jesus Christ because it's his righteousness that we take on. Verse 2, let's go verse 2. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Mercy, what's that? You know what it means? It means you don't get what you deserve. How good is that? Mercy, peace. You know, there is no peace for the wicked, says Isaiah 57, verse 20 through 21. Did you know that? No peace for the wicked. And love be multiplied to you. Love is obviously important. Interestingly, it's a lack of love that's present in the end times. 
One of the main characteristics they will see, apostasy and lack of love going hand in glove. The seven churches of Revelation, for example, we studied them a few months back, right? Ephesians, what'd they do? They lost their first love. Philadelphia was known as the city of brotherly love, right? And what came right after Philadelphia but the church of Laodicea, which speaks for itself. Verse 3, dear friends, dear friends, beloved, better translation, Although I was eager to write you about the salvation that we share, I found it, found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. I found it necessary to write. That word necessary, by the way, in the, in the Greek is the word agapeo. It means totally given over to. This is important to understand. He was planning to write a a letter about just how great Jesus is. Isn't he great? I was going to write you a letter uh, about the salvation that we share, just make it all about salvation. However, I was totally given over to, or another way of saying it would be a divine compulsion, a pressure that I felt from a divine source to write you this instead. Acts chapter 3, or 17, verse 3, uh, uh, the same word is used uh, as it reads, Christ must needs to suffer. In the King James, it's the same word. Christ was given over to, compelled to. He had to do it. It was necessary, in other words. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16 reads, Necess- Paul says, Necessity is laid upon me. Woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. In other words, the Lord just changed what I was about to do. I am pressured by God and the Holy Spirit to share what the Lord has put on my heart, and far be it from me not to do so. So I was going to write you about salvation, but you know what? The Lord has impressed on me that I've got to do this. I am compelled to do it. I thought that was pretty cool. I found that last night while I was reading, and I thought I'd bring it up. Because last week, if you remember, I was hoping to study this last week, and at 11 o'clock at night, The Holy Spirit had different plans. I told some of you, I just put my head down on the desk, like, oh no, I'm going to be up till five now, you know? But hey, far be it from me, right? That's the uh, compelling that we're talking about here, okay? So he says, I found it necessary to write, appealing, another translation there is exhorting, in other words, to come alongside you, to help you, to contend for the faith. That word contend is everything here, church. Hear me now, okay? Contend means fight, to struggle for. A better, uh, one of my favorite translations is to agonize upon. It's agony. Strenuously in defense of of the faith. You know, when you work out and you're an athlete and you're working, the harder you work, the more agonizing it becomes, right? But what are you doing it? We're doing it for to win the race, right? And so it is in this context. He says, we must contend for the faith even if it's agonizing. It's also an active military word. An active military word in, that, in their language, okay? Contend for the faith that was delivered to all saints once and for all. Do you get the intensity of this? I hope you do. 
It's reminiscent of Nehemiah. I love the story of Nehemiah. I don't have time to go to the scripture today, but in Nehemiah, so write it down if you want. In Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 17 and 18, there's a scripture and it talks about the builders of the wall. When they were sent back to Jerusalem to, to start rebuilding the wall prophetically, uh, the builders of the wall worked with one hand, only one hand, not because the other one was tied behind their back, but because in their other hand they held the sword. That's how much fight they were getting. That's how much oppression, that's how, how many uh, invaders were coming in. And they never knew at any moment they could be attacked and their work attacked. So they worked with one hand, according to Nehemiah chapter 4, 17 and 18. They worked with one hand, and in the other hand, they had to hold a sword. It sounds like our current condition in the world, if you ask me. The sword being the word of God, though, of course. So we contend for the faith. But what is faith? What is faith, church? It isn't just believing. It isn't. I don't know if you know that or not. I know many of you do, but you know, think of it in these, these terms. This chair right here. Hey, I'm, I'm going to use a prop. Here we go. Hey! Unplanned prop, right? Look at this chair, right? I believe this chair will hold me. But you know what? Until I sit in it, I'm not really putting any faith in it. Do you understand that? That's faith. We must rely on our belief. So you believe it. Yeah, I believe it. But do you rely on it? Do you tr are you truly relying on Jesus for your eternity? Because that's where belief becomes faith. It's trust. And every day, Jesus is giving you, giving you an opportunity to trust him. Every day, he's saying to you, do you trust me? Speaking of faith, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, reads as such. Now the Spirit expressly says that in when latter times, again, speaking to you, the Holy Spirit, some will depart from the faith giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Faith is something that will depart from the earth in the end times. Are we getting this theme yet? This is Jude's warning to you. Look out. Faith will depart in the last days. Faith will be, will there, Jesus said, will faith even be found on the earth when I return? Apostasy is something that characterizes the last days. So don't be surprised at all the apostasy that you see. I think that's one of the biggest things that's so discouraging for a true blood-bought believer living in this day and age is to look around and see all of the apostasy and to ask yourself, Lord, how bad are you going to let it get before you come? Well, pretty bad, I think is the answer. Good news, though, is that apostasy is easy to spot. You know what the key is? The key is Revelation chapter 22, verse 18 through 19. Simply this, don't add to the book. Don't add to the book, all right? Don't add or take anything away from the book. Have you spotted any of these teachers lately that are adding or subtracting from the book? How many subjects are left out by ministries or pastors to meet their own ends? Well, that's uncomfortable to teach about. What do you do with Revelation? Well, I don't do anything with Revelation, right? How many are left out? The Word of God is your anchor, church. The Word of God is your answer key. 
if you're taking the test. It's the measuring stick by which every claim is made by any pastor, me included. Don't take my word for anything I say. Look it up. Test me. Try me. I mean it. Our faith walk is not, or rather it cannot be passive, church. It cannot be. I would say, especially in this hour of history, but I don't think there's ever been any hour of history where a true faith walk could be allowed to be passive. It's not an afterthought. It's not just an hour of devotional or Bible reading, okay? We, we have a real enemy who hates you. And he is very active today. Who's been attacked this week? Show of hands? I'll hold them both up. I got to hold a few more up for some of you guys. I'm telling you guys, he hates you. And he lies to you. Lies about you. Lies to you. Just can be worse. He wants you to forget who you are. He wants you to forget who you are. He wants to lull you to sleep. Your enemy wants you asleep. Your enemy wants you dis- disengaged. Your faith walk, church, is not simply the practice of having deep thoughts. You understand? I think that's, for many Christians today, in the larger apostate church, they say, how's your walk with God going? And, well, they think, well, I had some deep thoughts the other day. I mean it. I had some deep thoughts with him, you know, and then, and then some things occurred to me. Well, how do you know that, that was the Holy Spirit and not a deceiving spirit that was bringing things to your occurrence, Right? Occurring, rather. We are at war. We are at war, engaged in a continual struggle against the powers of darkness. I have beat that drum a lot this year, I know. But we must contend for our faith. We must. Verse 4 now, verse 4, tells us why the Holy Spirit has changed the intent of Jude's letter. I was just going to write to you about our common shared salvation. It's great, right? But the Holy Spirit impressed, literally forced me to send you this warning instead. Why? Well, here we go. Verse 4. Let's read. For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only Master and Lord. So why did he write this letter? I've got a list for you. Because there's a threat to you. We have that graphic? There's a threat to you. Is it coming up? Maybe restart the computer, and we'll try that. Because that was working. Or at least media shout. I'll read you the list. There is a threat. Tares among the wheat, according to Matthew uh, chapter 13, 24 through 30. False brethren, Galatians chapter 2, false brethren that have stolen into the church. Okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 11 talks to us about saints being in peril. 1 Timothy chapter 4 talks about doctrines of demons in latter times. And then, of course, there are pre 
written warnings that go all the way back, all the way back into, yay, even into the apocryphal text, which will be interesting as we study forward, but not for today. I think we're lifting enough already. (laughs) So, what is an apostate? When you think of an apostate, what do you think of? What is an apostate? Somebody was going to answer out loud, I love it when that happens. What? What's an apostate? Against the faith, yes. Well, Proverbs chapter 28, verse 5 says this. Evil men do not understand justice. They don't understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand all. So this is the test. This is the test as these people usurp into our churches among us and take leadership positions in our nation. This is the test. A wonderful example of this uh, is in the parable of the sower. We've heard the parable of the sower before, right? We've studied that before. I'm not going to break it all down, but let me share this with you. In Luke chapter 8, verse 13, it reads, it'll be familiar to you, it reads, but the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, hear the word, hear the gospel, they receive the word with joy. They're happy to receive the word with joy. And these have no root, though. These are those who believe for a while, and in time of temptation, they then fall away. Interesting point here is that that word receive, in the Greek is the word dekomi. It means just that, receive. And in Mark chapter 4, verse 20, the same word is used, uh, but it's paradektomi, which means it's welcomed into their life, okay? Welcomed into their life. So it's received happily, but without root, versus being welcomed into your life. There's a difference, Okay? They heard the gospel. That sounds nice. I want some of that. It sounds comforting. So they, t- they, they uh, receive it, but they don't welcome it into their life. It's not good ground because they don't welcome it into their life. Okay? So here's the test. Is it real to you? Or do you just like the idea of Christianity and coming to church because, you know, it sounds nice, it's comforting, and it's of no burden to you? It's a heck of a sales pitch, isn't it? Or is it faith? Or is it truly faith? Do you trust him? Do you rely on him? Do you contend agonizingly for it? That's the difference. If it's... Taken into your life. It's a part of who you are and all you do. It's a part of who I am. Apart from it, I am not. That's the difference, church. So what is an apostate? I asked that a minute ago. Here, I've got a list for you. They don't understand the word. They've taken it into the... They've, they might believe it, but they don't put their trust in it. They don't rely on it. So they don't understand it. They don't understand it. They do not bring forth fruit, as Matthew 13, 23 says. Without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the root, Jude will say in verse 12. This is not just indifference or error or heresy alone. This is a, the apostates deliberately reject God's truth. They deliberately reject God's truth. They have received light but they have not taken it into their life. This is important. I think some of you need to take a 
picture of this because he's talking about people we will go to church with in the end times. And they say they're a believer. And then you're like, oh, great, you're a believer too. And then guess what happens to your guard? It goes way down. And then what happens? They start rationalizing sinful behavior that creates separation between them and God. And then thusly, because you're influenced by it, now it's creating separation between you and God. This is a warning. (laughs) Received light but not life. The written word, like I said, they may even read some devotional stuff. But they've not received the living word. Examples of apostates in the, in the Bible are Judas, Cain, Balaam, Korah. They'll be mentioned in the book of Jude as well. What manner are these who have crept in privily, settled, having settled down alongside of you? They are false teachers. Who is an apostate? They bring in damnable heresies, according to Peter in 2 Peter chapter 2. In verse 4 of Jude that we just read, he also gives us three identifiers of what to look out for for the apostates in the end, doesn't he? What did he say? He said, ungodly perverts of grace and they deny our Lord and Savior. So he's going to use these three examples again in verse 11, the Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Cain he mentions for ungodliness, Balaam for the perversions of grace, and Korah, the denial of God's appointed leader. Korah is the one who challenged Moses, if you remember that old story, and got swallowed into the earth. It's a bad move. But who is ungodly? So let's take these three. Let's take these three. Ungodly, perverts of grace, denying the Lord and Savior. Who is ungodly? I've got a list for you. Here we go. Who is ungodly? Those who are destitute of reverence and awe towards God. I want you to understand this. In the heart of a believer who understands that their condition apart from God is desperate, When you understand that and you receive the free gift of salvation, faith plus nothing equals salvation, but then the Lord puts a desire to do good works in your heart, right? But when you have understood that, you know what? I am so humbled because I am desperate without the cross and the empty tomb. You are in awe of what God has done and in awe of what he set in motion before you were even born. He knew your name. He knew the end from the beginning. You are in, you have a revering awe for God. The ungodly do not. They have no awe towards him. Maybe they, they might even say they believe. They might even ask him for stuff, but they have no awe towards him. There's a form of godliness, but it denies the power thereof, 2 Timothy 3.5. It denies the gospel. The ungodly deny the gospel of Christ, Romans chapter 1. The ungodly denies the transforming power of new life. That might be a great way to say it doesn't take root. They don't make it a part of their life. They don't take it into their life, right? And therefore, there's no transforming power. But if you let it, it'll transform your whole life, your whole way of thinking. There's a peace. If you haven't done this, if you're still struggling with it, I'm telling you, there's a peace for you that you have never known until you surrender to this, to him. This is the heart. It's all about the heart, remember, versus an outwards appearance. Versus, I'm a Christian, and I go do all this Christian stuff, so I should look Christian and be Christian, but it's a matter of the heart always, all right? 
the ungodly deny wrath against sin. Because that would be inconvenient, because I actually kind of like sin. So I don't want there to be wrath, and I'm happy to hear any doctrine that suggests that it isn't all that bad, right? How much of that junk is in the church today? Huh? Can we be honest? A lot. Denying the wrath against sin. What is the mantra of the apostate church today in this nation? Come as you are, stay how you are. Everybody's having a good time, right? God's holiness and God's acceptance of the finished work of Jesus Christ on behalf of all sinners. God is holy, church. The ungodly reject that. Then there's this whole idea of universal brotherhood of man. You know, there's this idea that goes around in church circles today that, you know, well, we're all born, you know, uh, I mean, we're all God's children and, you know, uh, you know, so regardless of, you know, maybe this universal religion that's coming out of Rome nowadays, right, coming out of the Roman Catholic Church, merging with Islam and stuff like that. We're all God's children. We're all just universally brothers and sisters, part of the same human race. And, you know, God loves everybody in different ways, and there's different paths to God, right? Well, according to John chapter 8, uh, John chapter 8, verse 18 and 19, John chapter 8, verse 44, John chapter 1, verse 12, and Galatians 3, verse 26, well, there's a problem with that idea, Okay? Why don't I just read it to you? Because I think you're going to find that we are not all brothers, unfortunately. As, mu- as nice as that sounds. John chapter 8, verse 18 and 19. Quickly, I know I'm running out of time. Uh, John chapter 8, verse 18 and 19 reads, I am, I am one who bears witness of myself. This is Jesus speaking to Pharisees here. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. He's speaking to these scoffing Pharisees. Then they said to him, verse 19, where is your father? I find it, this is, you know the spirit in which they operate. I've heard conjecture offered that they're calling him a bastard because they know who he is. They know his brothers. Oh, by the way, where is your dad? Wow. You claim to be the seed of God himself, so you're a bastard, huh? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. Keep in mind, he's speaking to Jews here. Then John, uh, further along, John uh, chapter 8, verse 44 He says this to them. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he means the beginning, the beginning. Do you know who the first person murdered in the Bible was? Anyone? Adam. That's right. I knew somebody would have it. Adam. When he fooled Adam... Death entered Adam. Before that, he would have lived forever. In the, trans, the state that we hope to be transfigured back into at the rapture, he was already in. Ah. Amen? And Satan murdered him. 
He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. This is Jesus speaking directly to descendants of Abraham here, right? We don't have the same father. We are not brothers. We do not have the same father. Your father is Satan. Mm. It's important to realize that there are a lot, of, a lot of saved Messianic believers, a lot of Jewish people who are saved, but just because you're Jewish doesn't mean that you're saved. Faith is the key. The heart is the key. Abraham was saved. Why? Because he was a man of faith. Great man of faith. John, let's finish that. <laughs> episode with Jesus. Let's read verse 56 through 59. Your father Abraham, speaking to the natural seed, rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. How cool is that? He knows that Abraham is seeing this day. He saw it. And you know where else he saw it? He saw it in the heavens when God took him outside this tent and said, your descendants will be as the stars in the sky. And what were the stars in the sky? The Maseroth the story of the virgin birth written in the heavens before it was corrupted and called a zodiac in Babylon. That's a whole other study, though. <laughs> Verse 57, Then the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Verse 58, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And I love that, because that phrase right there, guess what it is? It's the same wording that God used in the burning bush. And you know what line we can draw then? Guess who the burning bush was? Jesus. So cool. And then they tried to stone him. So, <laughs> of course. So there we have it. Jude warns us in this day of the ungodly. Warns us. Watch out for the ungodly. What was the second thing? Do you remember? Perverts of grace. You probably didn't think that we'd be talking about perverts today, did you? Unless we were going to get political. <laughs> what are perverts of grace? Here's one. Can you see it? Next picture. They pervert the grace of God into lasciviousness, sensuality. They pervert uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and Titus uh, chapter 2, they pervert the idea that it is a gift of God, this faith, yet at the same time, at the same token, we also are called to live soberly and to live a holy life. They, pervert, they either try to take that idea that we're supposed to live a holy life and put us into legalism, or they try to take that idea that, the, that grace is a gift and it's free and take us into lawlessness. They pervert the gospel either way, left or right. Perverts of grace, they reject the word of God. The rejection of the word of God occurs whenever it is displaced by tradition, custom, creed, or even loyalty to an organization. And finally, I'm almost out of time. Lastly, denying our Lord. Third thing he warned of these apostates, what they'll do. They'll be ungodly. They'll be perverts of, uh, of, of grace, and they will deny our Lord. Simply put, they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ, Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 2. 
They deny his sovereignty, that he is the pre-existent creator of all things. That's who he is. That is our Lord Jesus Christ. He was before we ever were. He knew you would sin and fall short before he even created you. And he therefore knew what he would have to do to bring you back to himself. And he decided that you were worth it still. Jesus. They deny our Lord, the Lord of true believers, Jesus, Jehovah, the Savior, our martyr substitute, who took what we deserve so we could take what he deserves. They deny Christ, that he is the, the Messiah, the anointed one of Old Testament prophecy. And lastly, if we are like they, this should scare every one of us. If we deny him, then he will deny us before his father. And we need to know that. Oh, church, these are indeed times that try men's souls. We've been through a lot today, haven't we? It only gets better. I'm telling you this study. We are indeed in times that try men's soul. We have to be engaged. We have to be engaged. The idea that we can just have a casual, sweet, nice faith walk with no, of no consequence, of no argument with neighbors, no attack from unbelieving snakes that have wiggled their way into the church, or false believers who may even think that they're saved, but they know not the word of God, which is very frightening how many of those there really are. We have been infiltrated by false believers, false teachers, and we must contend for the faith. True faith, church. We must not shrink back as the summer soldier would, right? You don't understand what that means when Payne says the summer soldier. It means, yeah, they're happy to fight when it's warm, when things are going great, when we're winning. In sports, you'd call them a bandwagoner, right? Everybody's a Bills fan now, right? The summer soldier, the summer soldier is happy to go home when it gets 17 degrees and we're crossing the Potomac, right? We must not shrink back as the summer soldier in times of strife or discomfort. It's very uncomfortable a lot to speak truth boldly. It is. I've had a lot of uncomfortable conversations lately. We're not called to comfort, but to discomfort, church. We must be bold to stand on the hill of truth. As unpopular as that makes you among your high school friends, that's my case. I'm, they're coming out of the woodworks. I haven't seen them in 30 years. Or as uncomfortable as it becomes, to the point of agony, to the contend, to the point of agony. We are not of the tribe that shrinks back, Hebrews 10, verse 39, amen? We're not. Is this real to you? Have you welcomed Jesus into your life? Does he and the Father abide with you? Does he make his home with you? So good. Or do you just like the sound of it all because it's nice to be loved until it gets difficult? That's the test.
The scoffers are all around us, church, and the true faith is growing scarce. The wheat and the tares have grown tall together, and it's easier to tell them apart these days. Are you ready? Ask yourself this. Are you ready to meet Jesus? If he comes back, and I'm telling you, he could come back real soon. There has never been a time in the history of this world that all of these end-time prophecies are lined up. And I could just, uh, here's a few. The third prophesied third kingdom of Israel is here for the first time ever. Has to be here in the end times. It's here. There's going to be a war in, uh, of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. Guess what? Every nation in that confederation is here and aligned in unity against Israel for the first time in history. And I've always wondered, well, why wouldn't the Arab nations jump in on that? Oh, Trump's making peace deals with them. I mean, it's here, guys. We're talking about a great reset where we're going to have one monetary system. The Pope is talking to the leaders of Islam saying, we need to have one world religion. The governments of every nation are saying, we need one world government. And guess what they also say when they say that? The only thing that stands in the way is the United States. Or does it stand in the way? I'm telling you. We're close. We're close. We're close, church. Are you ready to meet him? And I'll ask you this in these tough times. Are you ready to contend, to compete, to fight and defend your faith? Is it that real to you? If it is, I'll hear the warning of Jude. In Jesus' name, with every eye closed and every head bowed, I'll invite Leith up here. I don't know, church, what each one of you could be pulling out of this today. 10 of you could be pulling 10 different things out of it. I don't know. But whatever the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart this morning, I want you to bring it before the throne. I want you to bring it to him. I want you to lay it down at his feet. I don't know if you, maybe you haven't been contending. Maybe you're not sure that your faith really has been real. Maybe you have an understanding, a belief in Jesus, but maybe you've never truly been relying on him. And maybe you're realizing that right now. I, I don't know. Whatever it is, church, the Holy Spirit is speaking something to your heart. I want you to bring it before your King, your Lord, your Master. I want you to, I want you to welcome Him into your life. Does the Father and Jesus, do they, do they live at home with you? Do they abide with you? Where you? Wherever you go to and fro and in your home and in your heart, in your life, Whatever it is, the Lord is moving on your heart right now and you want to surrender it, do this for me, guys. Everybody close your eyes, head bowed. This is between your pastor and you so I can pray for you, but more importantly, between you and your king, just raise your hand and lay it down at the feet of his throne. You can put your hand right back down. Thank you. Thank you. Just raise your hand. Let him see it. Something happens. Thank you. Thank you. When we do something physically, it does something to us spiritually as well. You know, we are both physical and spirit, so it's in part. So this is not just ceremonial when you raise your hand. It's agreeing with your spirit. It's making it real to your flesh. 
Surrender your heart, your life. Yes, Jesus. God is good. Oh, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for who you are. Let's pray, church. (laughs) Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the way that you love us. You know, let's do this. Speak with me out loud. Let's just say that. So all that rose their hand, and even if you didn't, we'll say it for our brothers and sisters. Say this with me. Say, Jesus, I believe that you're God. I believe that you love me. I have faith that you've got me. Come into my heart. Come into my life. Come into my home. And make me new again, Jesus. Lord, give us courage to contend for the faith. Give us wisdom in these times. Come into my heart and make me new. Walk with me all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. May the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. May he go before you, be beside you, and follow after you. May you prosper in all you do. Go in grace. In Jesus' name, amen. We love you guys. Thanks so much.